Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and you have been listening to Peter from Doing, uh, say, uh, doing Time. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Uh, Vivian's bringing, bringing us two interviews about the post-carbon world, so stay tuned for that. So tonight's show is about Bob Massey and his recent tour of the coal-rich regions in Australia. Bob's aim was to stir up the debate about what Australia will be like when we are forced to leave our coal and gas in the ground. As a Harvard economist, he shows us the risks of investing in the fuels of the past. And as a politician, he points the way forward so workers are not stranded and communities are enhanced by diversifying away from fossil fuels. Bob Massey has been the president of the New Economy Coalition since March 2012, a network of 100-plus organisations who are working for a new economy. You can, of course, Google the New Economy Coalition, but where capitalism has failed, the New Economy Coalition looks to convene and support all those who might contribute to an economy that is restorative to people, place and planet, and that operates according to principles of democracy, justice and appropriate scale. So sit back and listen to this talk by Bob Massey. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and I'm Vivian Langford. Tonight I'm bringing you a talk by the US economist Bob Massey about how climate change is forcing us to be more creative in reskilling coal and energy workers for what he calls the post-carbon economy. The talk was at Pitt Street Uniting Church, which was fitting because Bob Massey is also an Episcopalian minister. There's something rousing and inspiring about his talk, although it's strictly on on the economic reality of a dying coal industry and the momentum needed to demand that our governments make a fair and orderly transition. Uh, Bob Massey said to us, we must demand the leadership we must have. Bob Massey also gave talks in the Latrobe Valley and in the Queensland minefields. 
CFMEU President Luke van der Merlen said, We need clever thinking, proper planning, community consultation and real action. And this is what Bob at Massey was giving us ideas about the sort of real action that they um, worldwide is being taken uh, to make a transition away from fossil fuels that are causing climate change. Bob Massey was brought to Australia by 350.org and the Earthworker Cooperative. So these are real activists and I hope you join them in calling for a diversity of new industries and employment opportunities that won't be complicit in climate change uh, for the coal-dependent areas of Australia. So here is Bob Massey. He starts by reminding us how change is inevitable. Today, change is pressing in on us from every side, changes in technology, changes in growth and trade and competition. And all of that change is taking place in our physical world. The wind, the weather, oceans, storms, heat, rain are all becoming more unpredictable. And in many cases, more violent. But I didn't come to Australia to repeat what you already know. But we do know we must face that climate change is no longer some speculative problem in the future. Its effects are cascading down on us already. We look around and what do we see? We see drought and flooding, extinction, bushfires. We see the bleaching of coral reefs. We see the melting of the polar ice cap, of the Antarctic ice sheets, the glaciers of Greenland, methane bubbling up from formerly frozen permafrost, the expansion of tropical disease, the strangling of rivers, lakes, and fresh water, the intensification of hurricanes and cyclones, the rise of the seas, the pollution of our groundwork, and on and on and on, damaging human beings by the millions and other species by the hundreds of millions. We are placing humanity, and particularly humanity who live in coastal areas, at ever-increasing risk. And that's true not only in Bangladesh, it's true in water cities like Boston, like New York, like all the coastal cities of Australia. And the problem, as you know, since I'm sure many of you have heard my dear friend Bill McKibben, or you have read Bill McKibben, the problem, in some sense, is a very simple problem, which is that we can only afford to burn another 565 gigatons of carbon to stay within a limit that even at that limit will be damaged, the two degrees centigrade limit. And we know that there are 2,700 gigatons of proven reserves on the books of fossil fuel companies today. Five times more than we can afford to burn. And yet, and yet, despite the fact that we know we can't burn it, despite that fact, the fossil fuel companies of the world, backed up by many of the governments of the world, every day are digging and drilling and pumping and burning more. Even though we know that 80% must stay in the ground. Now, in the United States, people have had trouble internalizing this, accepting this, because it has seemed so remote 
although that is rapidly changing. We also have to acknowledge in the United States that the conversation about climate has actively been suppressed. We, through the shenanigans of our Supreme Court, ended up with two, not just one, two oil executives as president and vice president under President Bush. And they suppressed government action and government inquiry into this problem. And as a result, America continues to pay higher and higher and higher prices for the delay in that conversation and the delay in action. One storm, Hurricane Sandy, cost the United States $60 billion. And it's because of that inaction and that, that inability to discuss an important question that we saw 400,000 people on the streets of New York last fall. It was an amazing experience, I was there. But 400,000 people showed up. I'll tell you, my daughter, who's 16 and who thinks that her dad is just always talking about who knows what, decided that this was important. She wrote a letter to this program she was in that had 30 students. She, talk, she was away at school at the time. She called me up and she said, I got 16 of them to come to the march. I said, great, honey, that's so great. You got more than half. She said, yeah, but what is wrong with the other 14? <laughs> but that, that moment when Americans, not just in New York, but all over, began marching was a sign that people are fed up with the lack of leadership. Now, I don't know if that's a theme that you can identify with in Australia. <laughs> I'm only been here 24 hours. <laughs> but the lack of leadership is something we need to talk about tonight. Because, you know, in theory, that's what governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to lead. And yet, over and over, we see governments not only not leading, but often acting in a counterproductive way. So let's talk a bit about a particular challenge that you have in Australia, but in a global context. And if you'll permit me to be direct, Many people in other parts of the world are startled, befuddled, why the Australian government is doubling down on coal when the whole planet is struggling to reduce carbon emission and when demand for coal globally is fading away. And this is a challenge for, not only for you, but for the world. Your government representing you is saying that because this is your preference, they are planning to spend billions of your dollars on the theory that coal can be dug forever, burned forever, without harm, to anyone, forever and ever. Amen. But that is not true. Coal is on the way out. That is the hard news. Goldman Sachs just wrote a massive report and they said, just as a worker celebrating their 65th birthday can settle into a more sedate lifestyle while they look back on their past achievements, we believe that thermal coal has reached its retirement age. <laughs> but coal demand is shrinking, and starting with the United States, we're seeing it drop. Prices are dropping. The predicted price of coal is supposed to go down 18%. In the U.S., that's partly because of hydraulic fracturing. It's also because 
Um, we are seeing that our EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency, is instituting a much stricter mercury and air toxic standard. And so we are seeing coal uh, plants shutting down because they cannot meet the standard of health being set by the government. And we are dropping coal generation capacity like crazy all across the U.S. This is Harvard economist Bob Massey on the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show at 3CR. Bob talks about what's going to happen to the workers left behind by coal if we don't make a plan. How China and India are protecting their coal workers. Now, it is a problem in the United States how to address the lost jobs, just like here. And I have to say, much as I wish I could tell you that I have the exact answer, there is no silver bullet. There are many, many things that need to be done. In the United States, we have proposed many times a grand bargain that would allow for worker transition, pension, retraining, community economic development. And in fact, right now, the president, uh, President Obama, has a comprehensive coal transition strategy built into his budget, but it's going to be shot down by a Republican Congress. So there are blueprints for how to do this, but it is not, hey, let's find one new industry to swap for another industry. It is about building complicated, interconnected, resilient local economies, which I'm hoping we will hear more about from the panel. Now, in Australia, as I understand this, part of the argument is that, leaving aside the climate problem for a second, Part of the challenge is um, that there supposedly is going to be an unlimited demand for coal from China and from India. That seems to be the core logic, that if we dig more coal, we're going to be able to sell it. Now, I was just in China two months ago, and in the paper, every day, in the China Daily News, the English language paper, you can read of the Chinese government's commitment to slash coal imports. 70% of Chinese mines lost money last year. Chinese miners are having trouble maintaining their work. China has invested billions in their own coal infrastructure, in their transportation, and they want to make sure that their Chinese miners continue to have jobs. So they have imposed all kinds of new tariffs and restrictions on imported coal, and they want to bring that down rapidly. In addition, as you know, China just signed an agreement with the United States. Maybe they will implement it quickly or not, but the agreement calls for a peaking and then a reduction of Chinese emissions within the next 10 years. The biggest bang for the buck that they can get is if they kill off as much coal as possible. So China has signed an agreement saying, Essentially, we are going to stop using as much coal in the future. And if we do use it, we're not going to buy it abroad. As a result, both Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan are predicting that seaborne coal will shrink this year. They're expecting the price to drop 30% from $80 to $65. They say that this is likely to be the case at least until the end of the decade. They expect a 35% drop in Chinese demand over the next few years. And the challenge is that 
it is not predicted to come back. It is overwhelmingly in China's national interest to rid themselves of dependence on Australia. So, if China is not going to be the place to sell all the coal, then let's take a look at India. India has an, a huge appetite for energy. They don't have 24-hour power for their people. There's 1.2 billion citizens, and they are determined to expand its access to energy. They have been buying coal from Australia, but they have no desire to keep doing this. India has more coal than Australia, and they have more people who need work. 57 times more people. India's official policy is to boost renewables and to cut imported coal. So we should not be surprised that just three months ago in November, and then again last weekend, the power and coal minister, Piyush Goyal, said in the next two to three years, we should be able to stop imports of thermal coal. That's not like slow down, reduce, ease off. That's stop, as in zero. Now, maybe he won't be able to beat that. But does this sound like a world in which there's going to be insatiable demand for hundreds of millions of metric tons of more coal? J.P. Morgan, report, in their report, in their dry econo-speak, says lower demand means limited demand for new greenfield mines in the short to medium term. In other words, in English, it makes no sense to open a new mine. Now, this is not Greenpeace. It's not Bill McKibben saying this. This is an international investment. And yet, I come here and I hear about the plans to build a huge nine mines in the Galilee Basin and all of this infrastructure to support this and it's going to solve all the problems and it's going to be fantastic. I don't see that. And what I hope is that there can be a serious national conversation about the reality that coal is fading away globally. And Australia needs to be prepared for that and prepared to work with its citizens to define a new future. This is Harvard economist Bob Massey talking about the opportunity we have to create jobs in the post-carbon economy. 380,000 new jobs have been created in Germany since they are now getting 50% of their energy from renewables. So those are jobs in renewable industries. And the US coal plants have been closing down with help from government transition plans. This is something that Australia could look into. Again, I don't have the magic answer, but I can talk to you about three pathways that are emerging. Because the problems that we're presented with also represent opportunities. It's not that often that you get the chance to completely design your energy system, and with it, many of your economic relationships. So, one of the approaches is when the government gets it and decides to commit its resources, financial and administrative and so forth, to a transition. That's a big help when your government's on your side. 
And so let's talk a bit about what happens when transition can come from the top. And the best example of transition coming from the top that we have in the world right now is Germany. Other countries are busy at work on this, Denmark and many others, but Germany has done some remarkable things. It has 82 million people, so about four times the population of Australia. And it's packed into 357,000 square kilometers, which is half the size of Queensland. And more than a decade ago, the German government decided that their total mix of energy was completely wrong for the future. And we were just discussing with Carr why they reached this conclusion. One of the reasons, I believe, is that Angela Merkel, the chancellor, had been the environment minister in an earlier government. And she had been exposed to the global conversation over the last 25 years about climate. So the first thing they did was to start shutting down their nuclear industry. They shut half of it, Fukushima took place, and they committed to shutting the other half. And by 2022, there will be no nuclear power plants in Germany. Then the other thing they did is set off on a crash course of transition. And one of the things that governments can do is markets, as you know, bounce around. They can be very volatile. Prices go up, prices go down. They go up, people invest. They go down, people remove their money. It can be very hard to bring a new technology to market because of that volatility. The Germans decided to smooth out that, to make it possible for people to make the transition to solar power without worrying whether one minute it was going to be super expensive, the next minute it was going to be uh, cheap. What they did is they put it in a fee-in tariff, like it's been tried in some areas of Australia. They did it nationally. And it made it so that if you installed solar power, you could sell back to the grid at a fixed price. And that price was going to go down over time, so there was some pressure to get it done. And then they gave you subsidies to produce it. And as a result, Germany went from 6% renewable to 30% renewable in an incredibly short amount of time. And as a result, they have had, they, they now have the capacity to generate more than half of their energy need from renewable energy. And they even achieved a peak generation of wind and solar of 74% at one time. And these are huge numbers. Now, there are problems. How do you store that energy? How do you smooth it out? There are lots of interesting technical problems, but they didn't allow those technical problems to say, therefore, we can't do it. They said, therefore, we have to solve it. Now, the other thing about Germany is they are still digging coal. Because with getting rid of nuclear, they couldn't drop their coal quickly. But they now have a full-fledged plan to lower their coal use as the other ramps up. A balanced, thoughtful plan. Now, there are lots of other challenges in Germany worth investigating. But the important thing is that after all of this, they now have 23 thousand wind turbines that they didn't have before. And they have 1.4 million solar photovoltaic cell systems that had never been built. And all of that is now providing power for virtually forever from now on. And it's changing the nature of electric distribution in, in Germany because everybody who gets off the grid stays off the grid, creating a new challenge and a new dynamic for utility. Now, did this destroy jobs? 
it created 380,000 jobs, six times the number of Australian miners who now work in the renewable energy industry. So this is a key message for everyone, for the United States and for Australia. If you are serious about creating and maintaining jobs, you need to be spending money on a growing industry, not a dying one. On an industry that requires people, not an industry which can eliminate people with bigger machines. It's very important to bet on the future. The president of the Michigan Savings Bank in 1903 was asked by Horace Rackham, who was a lawyer to some guy named Henry Ford, whether he should invest in the Ford Motor Company. Rackham asked his friend. And his friend wrote back, the horse is here to stay and the automobile is a fat. <laughs> Fortunately, Rackham ignored him, he invested $5,000, and he walked away a few years later with $12.5 million. It's important to invest in the future. And at the time when the telephone, radio, airplanes, television, computers, and the internet appeared, they were all ridiculed. And we know that they transformed our life. Okay, so that's what can happen when you have a government that says, we want to embrace the future, we want to do what is right, not only for the citizens of today, but the citizens of tomorrow. Well, what happens when your country, uh, your government, is not leading? Again, I don't, I don't know exactly how this applies here. <laughs> so let me speak about the United States. The United States, from the very beginning of the environmental movement, Energy companies have done everything they could to drive a wedge between the interests of workers and local communities. Everything they could think of. And it worked. I have a very close friend named Joe Uline, who is one of the most senior members of our labor federation, the AFL-CIO. And when he started off, he was a laborer pouring concrete on the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. And he says that when he walked in the parking lot at the end of the day, many of his buddies had bumper stickers on their trucks that read, hungry, out of work, eat an environmentalist. <laughs> that hostility was palpable and it continues to this day, except people are starting to realize that this is a form of hostage taking. Don't make us change anything or we'll shoot the worker. And workers are realizing that that is not a win for them. And the increasing number of communities we're seeing alliances that understand that there is a connection between environmental justice, social justice, inequality, and the economic system that needs to emerge. So we now have in the US, a, we formed the Apollo Alliance, and something called Blue Green Alliance. I'm very glad to hear about earth workers. I'd like to know more about them. And so we are seeing the ability of communities that had been opponents to work together. We just have a little problem in our Congress. The United States, the President of the United States, has spoken repeatedly about the need to make dramatic transformation. But unfortunately, we have the leading climate denier in the United States Senate, James Inhofe, from the great state, petroleum state of Oklahoma, who is now the head of the Senate Natural Resources Committee. He does not believe in the science of climate, and he spends most of his time holding hearings about 
why this is a plot to destroy America. But we do know in America that when you have the political leadership in the face of a major crisis, you can make dramatic change. And one of the best examples is that in 1939, the United States made about, built about 40 airplanes a week. In 1945, we were building 1,000 planes a week. The United States went through a dramatic, comprehensive economic transformation in the face of the threat of fascism. There was no physical barrier to do that. It was a question of will. We have 88,000 miners in the United States. And just to throw out a number, a comparative number, if we offered pensions, job retraining, compensation for moving out of mining, we could offer every single miner in the United States a pension of $500,000 for a total of $44 billion. We're building F-35 fighter planes in the U.S. that cost $600 million each. So we could engineer a transition of our entire mining sector for the equivalent of 70 planes. That's not going to happen, but it could happen. So the battle for just transition in the United States has pivoted to the regions, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, battling against mines, fighting for a living wage, bringing bills to the lead Kentucky legislature, and protesting the governor's submissiveness to the coal industry. In Arizona, the Navajo people on the Black Mesa Reservation, who had 40% unemployment, have been battling the Peabody Mining Company for years, and they're slowly making gains, even because Peabody was not only mining, they were destroying their water, and they were not providing jobs. And slowly, the Navajo are pushing back and creating a new economy for themselves. In Washington State, TransAlta, a huge company, agreed to close a 1,600-megawatt plant, coal plant, in two steps by 2025, which will mean the elimination of all coal from the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And part of that arrangement was a $60 million transition fund for communities, for retraining, for local development. The battle was fought place by place. Bob Massey has been talking about a top-down and a bottom-up way to shift our economies away from fossil fuels. Now he talks about new economic ideas to create prosperity without destroying the world. He mentions Australia's subsidy for our dying coal industry, which is now about $270 million a week. He asks us how we could use that money to invest in the future rather than, rather than propping up the past. So we are seeing a rising awareness in the U.S. that the transition from a high-carbon, centralized, toxic energy system to a safer, cleaner, renewable system offers a rare opportunity to, re to rethink our relationships and our economies at the local level. Now, the third way, so we had top-down, we sort of had bottom-up. The third way is from all sides, when different elite institutions or significant institutions decide they've had enough. And that's 
we, we will not go into this in depth now, but that is what's happening in the U.S. with the divestment movement, where more and more institutions are saying, we've had it. We are not seeing change. We do not want to be on the take from the energy companies receiving dividends from them. We're done. And churches and universities and other institutions are steadily moving out. And that's sending a very powerful signal. It even includes the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which was created by the grandsons of John D. Rockefeller, the great oil tycoon of the United States. They have now divested their fossil fuels. So, and we are seeing that lesson, by the way, take off around the world, and I'm eager to learn more about what's happening in Australia. It was, and divestment is being driven by many factors. It was remarkable that last week it was announced that the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, the $850 billion Norwegian wealth fund, had dropped in 2014 114 coal companies because of the lack of confidence that they have a serious economic future. There are billions and billions of dollars that have been invested because people thought oil was going to be at $110 a barrel and so they could afford to drill in expensive and dangerous places and they now suddenly find themselves with debts and stranded assets because the price of oil has fallen. So let me talk briefly now about a different kind of vision. Um, you heard that I just stepped down from being the head of the New Economy Coalition. New Economy is a very broad term. But what it basically says is we've had different models of economy that have developed over the years. We had an 18th century version, 19th century version, 20th century version. What is the 21st century? And people are coming up with incredible number of ideas. That's the main message I want to convey to you. And it goes by many different names. The green economy, the solidarity economy, the social economy, the generative economy, the circular economy, the sustainable economy, on and on and on. But these all have a core idea, which is that you create prosperity through inter, uh, interdependence that does not destroy the planet process. And people have different ideas about how to do that. But I just want to mention to you that we now have dozens of think tanks in the United States that are looking at this question, the interdependence of energy and models for business, models for enterprise, the, the different forms of raising capital, how you can gain capital, how you can increase democratic control of organizations, how you can provide more locally controlled sources for creating business. Um, I could list them, but I'd use up the rest of our time together. Uh, there are so many. There's also an amazing transformation taking place because of technologies like the internet, something that I'd be very curious to learn about in Australia. So for example, in our rural areas, we have craftspeople who make beautiful things, but the problem is they can't sell those beautiful things unless they, at least up until recently, they had to get into a van and drive to a farmer's market and lay out a table and hope somebody came by and sell their stuff. Now, through organizations like Etsy, they can put it on the internet, and so you can live in a rural area, you can be making minimum wage, you can have another source of income, and you can sell nationally. That has changed the dynamic of local economics in many parts. Most of the people who sell on Etsy are women, 80%, and most of them are around the poverty level. This is a supplement to their income that they did not have before. 
So these things are being transformed. In addition, we're seeing distributed power. And this I look forward to hearing about uh, in Australia. We are seeing communities take back the control of their power. The most vivid example right now is in Boulder, Colorado, where Boulder, people of Boulder, the people of Boulder went to their local for-profit utility and said, could we please have more of an option for solar? And the utility said, let me think about that, came back and later said no. So they then went through a battle to take back the control for the city of Boulder. The company called Excel spent millions of dollars, and yet the people of Boulder reestablished a public utility. That is also part of what happened in Germany under the truly fascinating name of re-municipalization, <laughs> taking back the control of local utilities so that local people can make decisions about the kind of energy they want and they can take the returns which have come from them and redirect it as they will. So the thing that I hope that we can keep talking about is that these solutions are bubbling up now, not under the leadership of our Congress, not even under the leadership of our governors, the leadership of our mayors. Mayors in the United States are becoming the force for change in Greensboro, North Carolina, in Richmond, California, in Ithaca, New York, in Detroit, Michigan, in Boston, and many other places. It is local leadership that is leading the way. Okay, so, I think that, I hope that I can convey to you how important it is for the rest of the world that Australia make the right choices. On the one path, there's the path of pursuing an elusive and ultimately disappearing goal of digging and drilling your way to prosperity in the face of dropping demand and in the face of climate destruction. On the other hand, there's the opportunity for Australia, which already has 10% of its household um, as solar households, really start the conversation that perhaps has not fully taken place yet, to face up to the difficult realities and to seize the beautiful future. So I'd like to wrap up by saying, just asking a couple of questions for you. Australia is giving $270 million a week, $14 billion a year, $2,400 a year for a family of four to subsidize a dying industry. What if that money were spent on investing in the infrastructure and incentives for a renewable industry and on creating a just transition for the people whose jobs have so long depended on coal? What would happen if the government at the national level instituted market incentives for a true energy transformation so that you pushed your households from 10% solar to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60? So that the rest of the world went, wow, that's the pathway to the future. Australia is known for the amount of sun that it gets. <laughs> and if you are to put that sun in the service of the future, 
that would be extraordinary. What would happen if the Australian government decided to focus as much energy and as many dollars on building the future rather than propping up the past? And what if the government thought not only about the failed energy policies of the old economy, but move with the rest of the world towards a new economy with greater democratic control. Americans admire Australians for your strength, your creativity, your pluck, your optimism, your willingness to tackle hard jobs, and your can-do attitude, and we really need that now. It's to take that role that is being offered to you that is so necessary and to demand the leadership that you must have in order to make this hard transition. And I want to conclude with a quote from a remarkable man named Albie Sachs. You heard that part of my life was in studying and spending time in South Africa. Albie Sachs was an ANC uh, lawyer who had to flee to Mozambique because he was threatened. And the secret police, South African secret police, followed him to Mozambique, put a car bomb into his car. He opened the door, it blew up, it took off his arm, it blinded him in an eye, and he almost died. But he survived, and in the end, he came back to South Africa, where he became one of the very first members of the South African Constitutional Court, their Supreme Court. And he has this beautiful, beautiful passage where he is standing in line, waiting to cast the ballot in the very first truly democratic election, an election that no one had predicted could ever really take place. And this is what he says, what he writes, that he was thinking at that moment. Did things just happen, or did we make things come about? I knew that nothing we were living through had just come to pass. We had willed it all, we had worked for it, we had never given up, we had never let go of the basic ideas. We had believed, belief had been fundamental, but we had backed it up with endless hard work, and we learned how to do things together, and to accommodate the fears and interests of others, and to survive the sarcasm and disbelief of those who regarded themselves as more knowledgeable about the real world. And we just kept on going on and on and on until at last the impossible became first feasible, then real, and then inevitable. Impossible to feasible to real to inevitable. If you choose that path, that will be the world's destiny. Thank you. And uh, that was Bob Massey, recorded by Vivian Langford at a recent talk in Australia. Uh, I hope you've been listening long enough to hear my error at the top of the show where I said that Bob Massey is still president of the New Economy Coalition. He's not. He's stepped down, as you made clear in that talk. Bob was full of uh, praise for us Australians towards the end of that talk there, and I would recommend that we all use some of the pluck and optimism that he said we have as Australians and either get on the phone to your local MP or send them an email and express your opposition to the mining of coal. 
they say that you get the politicians that you deserve, so let's make sure that we do get the politicians we deserve. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. Yes, and that was Kim Salmon urging you to subscribe to 3CR. It's $35 for the unwaged or a pensioner, $65 for a waged or $110 for a solidarity gesture. Next up, we've got Blair Palazzi from 350.org. Blair Palazzi is a great climate activist and she's the Australian president of 350.org. Listeners, you might remember they brought out Bill McKibben and we talked to him about the ramping up against coal and the uh, tar sands. Uh, Last year, they brought out Young Pacific Warriors to show us how our exported coal is making some islands unlivable. And this year, 350.org brought out Harvard economist Bob Massey. So welcome, Blair. Thank you. Tell us about Bob Massey's tour. Yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity uh, really to start a dialogue around Australia specifically about, you know, it really still is taboo in our country to talk about uh, the fact that the end of fossil fuels is coming, uh, that it's still a big part of our economy and and many of the jobs in the communities that, uh, you know, in coal areas in particular are already being impacted by the reduction in the coal price. Mm. Uh, but on top of that, um, you know, other other things like, uh, gas too will be are being impacted will be impacted and we're still not really in a position where we're talking about what that will mean to us in Australia economically in the communities where there uh, there are jobs dependent on these industries and how we're going to transition into the low carbon economy that is really already underway internationally yeah it's the how that I can't get I've been interviewing quite a lot of people recently since Bob's tour because I'm interested in this but the how it's not really yet uh on the table and I wonder what would you say was Bob's main message? Yeah, I think, you know, he, he visited uh, nine cities while he was here in a very short window of time, including um, some key coal areas like uh, the Latrobe Valley, um, Newcastle. He went up to Mackay where the big debate about the Galilee Basin mines is going on and he went out to Perth, obviously a, an area very dependent on mining. Uh, and what he found and, and was great to hear at the end of the tour was the, a real openness of people to discuss what the impacts might be and some of the solutions. And I think one of his key messages is there is no sil- silver bullet kind of solution to this. It mm. will require a great deal of discussion, idea generation, and of course finding ways to fund some of the solutions that we come up with. But that each each different region will have to come up with things that uh, will work for them. And I think that ownership 
and the involvement in the process is both exciting and a great opportunity uh, for communities to get involved in solving the problem of climate change and the transition we'll need to get to the other side. Yes, that's what I took from the talk I heard. I heard to his Sydney talk, and I felt that he was trying to inspire us. You know, it seems impossible. Um, it seems that we'll have coal forever, but then, as he said, Goldman Sachs has said, you know, coal has reached its retirement age, and um, he gave words of inspiration at the end. Yeah, and I think there was a real invitation to ask for leadership that, you know, not only is it your right, but it is the role of government to help us navigate difficult issues like this. I mean, it's a huge national issue. It's a huge international issue. You can't expect communities to do this by themselves. And really, at the moment, there's no discussion by either of the two key parties about life after fossil fuels and what will our economy look like. Uh, And I think one of his invitations to us was to say, if you're not going to start demanding it, you're not going to get it. So it's time we all start going to our politicians, elected officials, and saying, uh, what's your plan? And how do we start that dialogue and discussion about what the solutions will be? And how can we be involved in it and, and not have fossil fuel companies dictating the ignoring of the problem, mm. which is really where we are right now? Yeah. Well, what questions did people ask Bob when he came to their town? I think uh, many were interested in some of his case studies of other countries and communities that had faced similar problems and some of the solutions they had um, for that. So there was discussion, there were questions about Germany's rapid transition, very top-down government-led, as well as some of the sort of grassroots um, solutions, things like online um, uh, solutions in terms of jobs and economic opportunities that are happening in the U.S., Um, So he described those in detail. And he talked a little bit, too, about uh, the community involvement in the actual problem-solving process. Uh, And, you know, where in many cases similar to here, communities felt like the industry was with them while it suited them and while they were making money. But when it was done, they dropped the community and the people in it and the jobs that went with that. And we're not providing any kind of assistance or transition. Uh, And so, uh, you know, preparing ahead of time, knowing that that may be the case, that companies are not likely to support communities and jobs after, in some cases, already going on in Australia where the coal prices dropped so dramatically that jobs are going and automation is playing a role in that as well. So there's an interest in all of those key areas. And I think Bob did come away with a real sense of open-mindedness about a great desire to tackle the problem uh, and to not turn it into a silo issue of environmentalists versus people working in the in, in the industry that you know together we're going to have to find these solutions and demand them from from our elected officials what about unions and uh, you know just workers did any ideas come up from them or are there any places where people are using a bit more creativity to think for the future yeah, I think there were lots of um, union. There was a lot of union interest in a few places that we went, and that was fantastic. Just to begin that dialogue with them about um, looking ahead and, and what it might mean for them, and again that demand for leadership coming from them in a organised way, as opposed to just individual employees. You know, it would carry a great deal more weight if the larger unions in Australia went to both parties and said. Uh, this is an issue we'd like to, to have discussed. Um, there were examples uh, around the world where unions had gotten involved to help transition processes, retraining, um, and various other ways to help minimize the impact. Uh, and, I, you know, I think there's, there's also, you know, a recognition, and Bob certainly 
I think when he left the country, um, spoke about it in Perth in particular, that, that Australia really was doing mightily well and was on track with things like a price on carbon where money could be raised to help with the transition that we need mm. or the setting of a renewable energy target that helped kind of push that transition into happening and providing new jobs in, in new industries. Um, but when the rug has been pulled out in the way that it has in Australia, mm. uh, you know, the, the pain that, and the cost that, that comes from that is inevitable. Uh, and the people who suffer, of course, are workers and communities, not uh, big com companies that, um, you know, have the wherewithal to, to um, continue on or, or make a shift when they're ready to. Yeah. So I, I think there was a certain sense of frustration um, on the part of most audiences to say, yes, we were on our way, we'd made some tough choices um, to turn our back on that and then have to rebuild it all again mm. is going to make it even harder when we when we do. I think one of the things that I took out of his talk was uh, about mayors, you know, local government mm. leaders and Beyond Zero has just had, it was in today's Renew Economist that um, Byron Bay Shire, which BZE has been working with them, is going to you know, adopt a policy of zero emissions quite soon. So they're working, right. you know, consistently on that, and I hope that involves some, some jobs too. But just, Blair, before you go, um, could you just bring us up to date on the tar sands? Well, it was pretty exciting to see President Obama veto the tar sands uh, pipeline proposal, such as it was through making its way through Congress. Um, and and then, interestingly, the, the, the veto couldn't be overridden, so there was an attempt to override the veto, uh, but it wasn't successful. I didn't have the numbers. Uh, so for the moment, uh, it's stalled, but certainly that's just one aspect of permission for the project. Certainly there will be efforts by the industry to keep pushing and pushing this dreadfully polluting uh, and expensive uh, fossil fuel project ahead. Uh, and Canada has played a key role in that as well. So uh, the fight is far from over, but it's an amazing step. And it really speaks to a campaign that was three years in the making and very much grassroots led across the, you know, all of North America. Yep. Um, so, you know, that, that you can take a project like that that was basically unknown and tell people about it, educate people, involve them, and then turn it into really a, one of those sort of weather vane issues where people say it is, in many cases, an example of the absurdity of climate change in this stage that you would fund something so destructive mm. and so extensive. So to stop it is uh, will you know, certainly the, the ultimate goal, and we're on our way. So thank you. You know, fingers crossed we'll get there. Okay, thank you. So that was Blair Polisi from 350.org. I'm just going to spruik the membership of 350.org. You can see they're very dynamic. They bring these speakers to get us mobilised, and you can be part of the team if you want to, and uh, I think you just go to the website, don't you, Blair? That's right, yep, 350.org. Australia and we have a great Facebook page and Twitter feed uh, about activities going on around the country. We have some great volunteer groups in most of the major cities so and love to have people join that. So any questions at all, info at 350.org.au and we can uh, point you to your local volunteer group. Thank you. Thanks very much, Blair. Thank From grassroots to global... Earth Matters, bringing you environmental issues with a social justice slant. Forest Tasmania has been overcutting the forest. They've also overcommitted their contract to Tartan. We have farmers standing side by side with the alternative community. 30 people were going to be arrested and 30 people were. There will be a fight near you somewhere. A mine of some sort of coal seam gas. The important thing is to stand up and fight. Tune in to Earth Matters on Sunday mornings at 11 or catch the repeats 6.30am Wednesdays. Or download the podcast on 3CR's website. 
Now they're starting to realise that we actually did live in that total harmony with the land. And that's about the end of the show for tonight. Thanks very much to Bob Massey, Blair Palacey from 350.org and the ever-energetic Vivian Langford for bringing us both of those uh, interviews. Uh, As I think Blair mentioned also, we all need to take action and get on the phone to our local MPs and write those letters and email and get your friends to do the same. Another another uh, action you may want to support is uh, next Saturday, the Earth Hour events. The focus this year is on farmers and how farming is being impacted by global warming. So all you need to do is think of the farmers of Vanuatu and perhaps support Red Cross or other charities helping them in the aftermath of that cyclone. I don't really know who is still saying that these sort of extreme weather events are an act of God, but uh, clearly the connection between the world's emissions uh, and climate change is evidenced by such events. Thanks again to the gang who bring Beyond Zero Emissions community community show to you every week. That's Vivian, Miwa, Glenn, Roger, myself, Genevieve now over at BZE. Um, and I'm sure I've, oh, and Teddy, Teddy for the wonderful promos which go out on Facebook. Stay tuned for Save Albert Park coming up next, and we will see you next week. I'm Helen Razor, but that's D. Is that you're listening to 3CR on what's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done.